These days, we have a lot of agency to curate how we present ourselves using pictures. We can take selfies and retake them and retake them. We can touch up our appearance and organize these pictures in a way that showcases who we are. In some ways, it's kind of hard to imagine this sort of curatorial agency being hard to come by, if not impossible. In the early days of the camera, the agency was often in the hands of the select few who knew how to operate them. In general, Native people didn't have access to taking their own photographs, and so people like Edward Curtis, Grace Chandler-Horn, all these other photographers were the ones who were able to make images of Native people, and in a lot of ways, they determined what Native people were perceived as. Two Michigan scholars designed an exhibition that just went on view at Ann Arbor's main library that examines early photographs of Anishinaabe people from the Great Lakes region and beyond. The exhibition is called No, Not Even for a Picture, re-examining the Native Midwest and tribes' relations to the history of photography. Today, we're talking with one of the curators of this exhibition about photography, consent, and myth-making. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Lindsay Willow-Smith is one of the curators of the exhibition. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Bonjour, Lindsay Smith, Indigenous My name's Lindsay Willow-Smith. It's great to be here. <laughs> So the photos that we take and share in our lives today, they tend to fall under two or three different categories. There are the pictures that are taken for commercial purposes and the personal pictures that we just snap of our friends and family. And there's art photography. I feel like the historical images that we're talking about in this collection, we should say some background. Where did these images come from? And maybe who took them for what purposes? So... A lot of early photography is a lot different than the stuff today because so much planning had to be put into making it a possibility. You know, today you can take stuff really spontaneously, but in the early days of photography in the mid-1800s, it was necessary for photographs to be staged and posed and were quite expensive to make. And when we're talking about pictures of Native people, those were all in a different setting during the era of you know settler colonization and people such as Grace Chandler Horn, who was a photographer in Petoskey, Michigan, was doing a lot of photography of Native people in ideas of what she thought Native people should be wearing, such as buckskins and headdresses. And so these all had different political meanings and weren't necessarily by the volition and consent of the people in them. Yeah, it is so, so easy to forget that even just the presence of a camera was a bit of a physical ordeal. Mm -hmm. Cameras had to be packed up and transported in uh, no particularly easy way. And so there were these people, mostly men, but as you acknowledge, some women too, who had the means to set themselves up as photographers. And the post-colonial history that we have tends to recognize people like Edward Curtis as photographers of a Native experience, whether or not that has any truth in people's lives. Why is it that not just those were the people who took the images, but how is it that those images became the predominant ones in archives and museums? Yeah, it's a great question. So very few Native people had access to cameras of their own. There's a few instances of you know Native people being educated in places like Carlisle Indian Boarding School, where there were classes that involved photography uh, with John Cohate. But in general, Native people didn't have access to taking their own photographs. And so people like Edward Curtis, Grace Chandler-Horn, all these other photographers 
were the ones who were able to make images of Native people. And in a lot of ways, they determined what Native people were perceived as. So when Edward Curtis was traveling, he had a trunk of regalia that he liked to have his Native sitters wear when he felt that they didn't look Native enough for his photos. He had a very preconceived notion of what he wanted his sitters to look like. And so by providing clothing for them to wear, he was able to make that image. And that has stuck with Native people uh, to today. People are still seeing and using Curtis photographs when they're discussing Native people, and that's still what the concept of nativeness is today. All the images in the exhibition are part of a collection that resides within the Clements Library. How did you and your co-curator, Veronica Williamson, how did you first talk about doing something with these photos? Yeah, so we were actually hired about three days before the COVID pandemic shut everything down. The Port collection had recently been purchased by the Clements Library from Richard Port. They had decided that they wanted to make an exhibition on the photography. It had originally been planned for an in-person exhibition, but quickly pivoted to a digital one. And Veronica and I very quickly, you know, went through the collection. And as we're both Native women, we had a lot of things that we wanted to do that weren't just the standard chronology timeline or, you know, pictures of famous chiefs that a lot of people that are not Native like to do with images of Native people. We wanted to really get into the thick of the collection and discuss what was going on on a thematic lens, which is why we really focused on questions of sovereignty, sovereignty of image, as well as the idea of consent within image making in the 1800s. The title of the exhibition comes from an astonishing story, although possibly not surprising story, from an issue of the International Annual of the Photographic Bulletin. And it dates back to 1891. Would you share how that story was told in the magazine? Yeah, of course. So very early on in photography, these bulletins were created so that people would have ways to communicate with other people, practicing a very expensive hobby. And in one instance, a man had taken a photograph of a Native man standing next to a corn pounder. And Prior to taking that picture, the native sitter in the photo had said that he didn't want to be taken a photo of. And he said, no, not even for a picture would he stand next to the corn pounder because that was women's work and he didn't want an image made of him doing that work. And the photographer had promised him that nobody would ever see the photograph. He was just taking it for practice. And then he immediately published it in this bulletin. And there's other instances we had found in different bulletins, but the phrase, no, not even for a picture, really stuck with us. We liked the idea of starting an exhibition that discusses the idea of consent in photograph making, starting with the word no, to be something that would be a bit remarkable. Now, there's a lot that's not funny at all about this, but the thing that cracks me up about that story is that the paragraph ends with the author, John Sanborn, saying, I refrain from giving his name. I mean, such delicacy after he's just willfully misled this man so completely (laughs) about his intentions with the photograph. It's something. Oh, yeah. But it's probably pretty typical of the attitude that photographers had at the time. Yeah, it was really common for um, sitters and photographs not to be credited with their names, especially Native sitters. If you go through like Edward Curtis's volumes on Indians of North America, you're seeing hundreds of Native people without their names being credited to them. Let's talk about some of the images in the show. There are many. Uh, Some of them are expressions of pure delight. Some of them are more difficult. There's one portrait that was taken that I think really kind of gets across many of the things that you and Veronica wanted to point out. It's a photograph of Charles Eastman. He was an MD and an author and maybe known to folks as the co-founder of the Boy Scouts. But he was also somebody who spent the later years of his life in Detroit. Charles Eastman was Santee, Dakota, 
with English and French ancestry as well. He was highly educated, worked as a lobbyist for tribes in Washington, D.C. And in this photo, he's photographed in regalia, which I believe has nothing to do with Santee Dakota tradition, right? It's possible that it is his regalia. It's possible that it isn't. He likely commissioned the photograph that's in the exhibition. But there's always the question when we were looking at these photographs of whether or not the Native person in them actually wanted to be photographed in regalia, if the images were actually made with the regalia on, or if they were being staged by the photographer. Um, so Charles Eastman, otherwise known as Ohaesa, uh, he was in this very weird limbo of participating a lot in Euro-American culture, but also trying to constantly get back in touch with his Dakota roots. And so we were really unable to figure out whether or not this image, uh, he was wearing his own regalia, or if it was regalia that Grace Chandler Horn had provided him. Yeah. What do you take away from the fact that he did pose in this way? Uh, I mean, it's a really great example of the pictorialist style, and it, it's a really well done photograph. It's very striking. Um, it had been discussed as being like the image that we use to make announcements about the show. But it was very hard for us to try to understand what was going on in this photograph. A lot of them are a lot more black and white, and we can figure out what the motives were or whether or not they wanted to be taken. But when we had so much information about Eastman as well as Horn and this photograph was done in such an artistic way, it was hard for us to try to think about. But it was really great for us to constantly ask ourselves those questions while looking at it. There are a number of photographs in the show in one of the other categories of what is what is commonly known as Hiawatha pageants mm -hmm. and photos of the chief known as Bukwajanene. I hope I'm getting close on the name. Do you know the do you know the traditional pronunciation? Bukwajanene. He was somebody who became very identified with these pageants that were a part of how a lot of white Americans understood Native culture. Can you explain a little bit about the pageants and how he became associated with some of them? Yeah, of course. So um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the Song of Hiawatha. And traditionally, uh, Chief Bukajanane is not associated with these. He had spoken with Longfellow at different points, but Henry Schoolcraft, who had married into a very influential Ojibwa family. You probably recognize the name Schoolcraft from different towns and townships and counties in Michigan. Is credited with a lot of them. And so Bukajanane has always been associated with the pageants, but it's only now that we're realizing how much he had influenced Longfellow and how these pageants originally were a way for Native people to show their culture because there were no other options for them to perform or make money on reservations. You know, this was during the time of boarding schools where speaking native languages was completely banned, but in these pageants, native people were expected to speak in their native language. And so it's this very complex matrix of native people being able to embrace their tradition, but only in a performative nature and getting to make traditional crafts like beading, but having to mix them with non-traditional crafts of that area, like wearing headdresses, you know, plain style headdresses within Northern Michigan. I don't know that there is an analogy that truly represents the power dynamic here, but it's almost as if what if what if Western Europeans were only allowed to express their culture by law through one story and it was a fairy tale, you know, maybe it was a French fairy tale and whether they were German or Italian or, or Irish or Scandinavian, like this was it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. just such a such a tiny, tiny lens and a constructed lens for an entire mosaic of experiences. Yeah. We need to take a break. More in a minute. 
Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. The photos of Bukwajanene, can you say what you see happening in those portraits? There's one where he's posing with with another man, and there's one where he's sort of on his own. Yeah, so Bukwajanene traveled to England when he was an adult in order to help fund the creation of a church on his reserve. He had converted to Christianity and wanted to make sure that there'd be a church that was available for his family and others living near him. And so he chose to travel to England. And these are carte de vis photographs, which are about the size of a baseball card. They're very small. And they were easy to manufacture in comparison to other photographs at the time and were commonly given out a bit like business cards, a bit like trading cards to other people. And so when he was traveling to England, he was able to hand these out to people and raise money while he was there. Um, So one photograph is him performing Indianness, where he's standing on this set and he is wearing things that people would associate with Native people. And the other one, he is sitting the way that someone would expect a civilized, within quotation marks, of course, person to sit. And so these two images together, and we look at them, we can consider uh, what was the purpose of both of these photographs and what was he trying to present to his viewers? What was the audience getting out of these, the original audience? Um, Were they seeing somebody who had become civilized or were they fetishizing his exoticism? And what were they donating money towards? You and Veronica chose to include several photographs in the exhibition that were artifacts of boarding schools. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision? Yeah, so I can't speak for Veronica, but as somebody who had a lot of people in my family, my ancestors who had survived Indian boarding schools, we wanted to make it very clear that, you know, these are still having effects on people today and that there are different ways of understanding them. Of course, we need to be considering Car Isle and other such massive schools, but looking at local ones such as Holy Childhood, which is one of the last Indian boarding schools to close uh, was very important to us. And so we wanted to bring this national idea of the Indian boarding school down to a more state level, such as Holy Childhood. There was Mount Pleasant and Saginaw. And the fact that the people who are impacted by these schools are still living in our communities today. For sure. There are several photos here and represented. There's one of the Mount Pleasant marching band. That is, it's, this is a group of young men who are in, in full uniform. And to be honest, they don't look particularly comfortable in the moment. But at the same time, you know, they are representing and they are, they are showing up together. Mm-hmm. What do you see when you look at that photo? Yeah, so one of the things that comes to mind is the way that these schools were modeled after the military and that these uniforms are very military-like and that this was part of the whole um, kill the Indian, save the man idea, you know, that this was forced assimilation uh, in the most intense way imaginable. And performing in something like a band um, that has so much regulation and performing something, you know, like 
Euro-American music and not being allowed to participate in traditional uh, Anishinaabe music, uh, assuming most of these students are Anishinaabe, given that they're in Mount Pleasant. But one of the strongest sentences that I think we wrote in the entire exhibition was the caption of this photo was that some practices were embraced by students on an individual level, though that does not alleviate the weight of boarding school systematic oppression. We're really trying to note here that while boarding schools, of course, were systematically oppressive and assimilative, there were instances where people enjoyed certain aspects of boarding schools. You know, a lot of people, if you're reading memoirs, are writing about how they enjoyed being in the band, or sometimes there were art classes that people enjoyed. And we don't at all want to say that we're the ones whose jobs it is to say what boarding schools were like. That's for the survivors to say. We're coming out of a period when a a much wider mass audience has become aware of what happened in boarding schools in Michigan and elsewhere. I have to say one of the most affecting photos that I found in this part of the collection is a photo of the student body of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. I think it was in Pennsylvania. Yes. I mean, it's it's a big image with a lot of kids, and it's a little hard to catch the detail on every single one of the faces, but... Just seeing their numbers, I think, says something. And it speaks to that every, you know, that every year there were these populations of kids in the schools, a number of them never leaving. And even just having that photographic record, it feels so meaningful still. Yeah, of course. There was one other aspect of this exhibition I wanted to ask you about. It's a section of the exhibition that talks about just the forms of sovereignty that were available to some of the people who were being photographed during this period. And you included a a couple of portraits of Chief David Schopenhagen and also a letter that he co-signed on that was a letter from several Ojibwe, Potawatomi, Wyandotte, and Miami leaders to President James Madison. Can you explain the choice to include the letter and the thing that makes this letter really unique? Yeah, of course. Um, I was very excited when I found it. It had never been transcribed before, so I was able to go through and transcribe it. But the reason we were so excited to include it is that when the men were signing the letter, they used their mark. They were able to draw what they represent themselves as, whether it was an animal or a certain type of scratch. And we thought it was very important to include this in the exhibition because at no other point was something created by a Native person included in the exhibit. All of the photographs while they had Native sitters, had been created by non-Native people. And we felt like it was just necessary for us to include something that was the self-identification of a Native person historically. Right. In case there were any doubt that there were ways of people putting their mark on the world other than this, this very artificial technology that was kind of new to this part of the world at that point. Absolutely. Had either of you ever designed an online exhibition before? I believe Veronica had some digital experience. She did a lot of the web design. But for me, this was the first time I was an undergraduate student at the University of Michigan, uh, just in the museum studies program. This was the first exhibition I'd done. What were some of the things that you two talked about that might be different than designing an exhibition that people would see in person? A lot of the things that made it a lot different were being able to do little tricks with an online exhibition and to make it more engaging. So one of the things we were most proud of uh, and that we've gotten really great feedback on from the people who've seen it was having a hyperlinked glossary throughout. The glossary isn't really something we could ever put in a 
you know, in-person exhibition, but being able to have people who are reading through it, who are unfamiliar with a certain word, whether it's sovereignty or reservation or regalia, whatever it is, they can click on it and go to a simple glossary definition and also use that glossary just going throughout life. If they're consuming other media relating to Native people and don't know what a word is, they can refer back to it. Happily, we're in a place now where some people may have the choice to see the exhibition in person if they feel safe doing so. Do you foresee the online nature of some exhibitions staying with us in the years to come? I think the museum field has definitely shifted to being more receptive to seeing digital exhibitions not as a second-rate version of an exhibition, but rather an entirely new form. Uh, I'm currently a contract employee at the National Museum of the American Indian working on a digital exhibition on jingle dress dancing. And so seeing a Smithsonian institution being willing to consider how digital media impacts the way that people can connect with exhibitions has been really great. You know, the evolving museum practices that we see at the museum are part of, I guess, a wave that is relatively new in this space. Are there other ways that you think museum is practicing is changing based on what's going on at that museum and, and those that have sort of come of age in the same period? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just having me and Veronica there was a big shift for the museum, uh, for the Clements in particular, just having Native curators there, having people relating to the culture that we're writing about has been a big change. Uh, Veronica and I wrote the first land acknowledgement for the Clements Library, and I'm pretty proud of how it turned out. It's not just one of those little three-sentence stamp-on ones that can fit anything. It's very specific to the exhibition and what it's doing and how colonialism has impacted the collection. Lindsay Smith. She is the co-curator with Veronica Cook-Williamson of the exhibition No, Not Even for a Picture. It has been on view at the Clement Library at the University of Michigan, and it's moving to the Ann Arbor District Library this month. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Miigwech. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. If you'd like to see some of the images that we've been talking about, the University of Michigan's Clement Library has an online version, if you're too far away to visit the public library, where it's on view in Ann Arbor right now. Full episodes of Stateside are available for streaming anytime at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Cabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for our podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing well. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.